You can be seated. Amen. Great uh, time of singing today. Thank you, Dustin and everybody. We appreciate you all so much. And great to be here with God's people today on this beautiful Lord's Day that God has given to us. If uh, you're visiting with us here today, we're especially glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming to uh, spend this uh, Lord's Day morning with us. Uh, last week, we began a new uh, book study on the book of 1 Peter, and we've titled this series, Still Standing. And we introduced the book last week, looked at the first couple of verses. So if you weren't here with us last time, you might get online and listen to that sermon. And there's also some notes that are posted there that'll give you a little bit more background on the book. Our text this morning, though, is verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. So if you'll turn there with me, I want to read these verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. A few years ago, I ran across an article about uh, two police officers that had to be rescued from a boat near the edge of Niagara Falls. Uh, they were summoned uh, out at night about two in the morning. There were four uh, teenagers, uh, young men whose private boat lost power on the Niagara River, and they were summoned out there to help them. Uh, while they were out there, their boat died. And they begin to be carried down towards the falls. And as they begin to hear the falls, it's foggy, it's at night. As they begin to hear the, the rumbling and the rushing of the falls, they throw out an anchor and their anchor uh, takes hold there in a rock. And in the morning when the fog clears, they realize they're about 300 yards from the edge of Horseshoe Falls, the great fall there of the Niagara Fall area. They're there for four and a half hours. Um, the, the article says they could hear the falls, they could see the falls, they could smell the falls. Finally, after four and a half hours, a Canadian helicopter comes and rescues them. Uh, the rescuer said this, they were, they were snow white like a bed sheet. Uh, they were very shook up. They couldn't stop thanking us. If the anchor would have let go, they would have had no chance. They would have gone over. And then the person that rescued him said this, such a little boat, such a big anchor, that saved uh, their lives. And as I thought about that story again, I thought the same is true for all of us spiritually. Uh, praise God, every one of us here, we have a small boat, but if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a big anchor, and our anchor will hold fast uh, through Jesus Christ. God will never allow one of His own to go over the falls. Our anchor is secure, and uh, the rock will hold. And I think there's never been a time when we've needed this kind of reassurance more than today. Seems like all that the foundations of society around us are being uprooted and overthrown and undermined. There's so many forces working against us uh, that are threatening our faith. And so our time is really just like Peter's time as he wrote this book. First Peter, as we said last week, is a book for our day. You remember the background of this book we mentioned last time that, that Peter penned this book uh, back in the early A.D. 60s. Uh, to a group of primarily Jewish believers who lived in five Roman provinces in what it today is the nation of Turkey. They were facing kind of sporadic, localized persecution for their faith. They are being mocked and maligned and insulted uh, for their beliefs in Christ and their behavior. Uh, they weren't suffering beatings yet, physical beatings or martyrdom, uh, but they were, they were enduring mocking and scorn for their faith. 
They were swimming upstream against their culture, kind of just like we are today. So the setting of 1 Peter mirrors our culture today, where Christianity is becoming increasingly unwelcome and is being pushed out to the margins. Uh, More and more today, believers are suffering what we call soft persecution, the persecution of mocking and reproach and and insults. And it's literally heating up in our country by the week. Uh, You can see illustrations of it almost all the time in the news. So the Apostle Peter wrote this letter of encouragement and hope to these uh, beleaguered believers. He's calling them to stand firm in difficult days. And to accomplish this purpose, he starts out and opens this letter by anchoring them in their salvation. He begins with their salvation because it's ultimately our salvation that that grounds and establishes our souls. I mean, everything else rests on the foundation of what God has done in His saving work through us. So that's always the starting point. Because without this firm foundation, we'll, we'll find ourselves staggering and stumbling through life. So Peter begins in verse 2 with the source of our salvation. We saw last time, he tells us the Father arranged it, the Son achieved it, and then the Spirit applied it to our lives. So the entire Trinity is at work in our salvation. But in verses 3 through 5, Peter moves from the source of our salvation to the security of our salvation. And that's where we want to pick up here this morning. I heard a story years ago about three uh, Christians who were having a conversation, and uh, one man told his friends, he said, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. And uh, one of the friends said, well, you know, there's something even better than that. And the guy said, what could be better than that? He said, well, it's to be saved and to know that you're saved. And the guy said, man, that's great. But there's a third guy that said, there's something even better than that. And they said, well, what could possibly be better than that? And he said, it's to be saved, to know that you're saved, and to know that you can never lose it. And it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that's as good as it gets. And that's what our text this morning is about. That you and I can be saved, we can know that we're saved, and that we can know that we can never lose it. Uh, Verses 3 through 12 here in 1 Peter 1 is one long sentence, and it's a long sentence about salvation. You see the word inheritance in verse 4, that's a synonym really for our salvation. You have the word salvation in verse 5, you have it in verse 9, you have it in verse 10. So this is a sentence about our salvation. And this morning we're going to talk about what has become one of the most controversial doctrines in church history. If you go back to the annals of church history, you see constant disagreement on the topic of what's often called eternal security or once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. And what that doctrine teaches is that a truly saved person can never lose their salvation. In other words, the anchor will hold. God will never let you go over the falls. Now, if someone were to ask me to defend the doctrine of the eternal security of a true believer in Jesus Christ, the first place I would go is Romans chapter 8. Let me just describe that briefly to you. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. It's called the five golden links of salvation. It says that whom God foreknew, it's in eternity past, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. 
So it's these five golden links, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Uh, Old J. Vernon McGee that I used to listen to years ago on the radio, heard him talk about that passage one time, and he said there's no seepage in God's program. If God foreknows you, you get predestined. If you get predestined in time, God calls you to himself. And notice whom he calls, he justifies or saves. And then it says, whom he justified, he glorified. If you get saved or justified, you get glorified. There's no seepage. And and the word glorified there is in the past tense. I mean, it's spoken of as something that's already finished. In other words, our salvation is so secure, it's spoken of there as a done deal. So that's the the, the first passage I would go to. Now, if someone said, well, what's the, the second best passage you'd go to? To me, it'd be a tie between John chapter 10 and our passage this morning. John chapter 10, what did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and I give them eternal life. Now, I love that. He doesn't say, I give them five years life or 10 years life or 50 years life. I give them eternal life. And then what does he say next? And they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, what a promise. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. Um, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. It's an ironclad statement of our security by Jesus. But the next passage I would go to really in order would be the one we have before us this morning. What I want to do this morning is look at five simple points in these verses that support the eternal security of a believer in Jesus Christ. Five anchors, if you will, that assure our our security. And you can see there in your outline this morning, they all begin with the letter P. Now, the first of these anchors is praise. Notice verse 3, blessed or literally praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's just been talking about how the Father arranged our salvation, the Son achieved it, the Spirit applied it, and some writers have described this as a doxological explosion. Peter, when he thinks about what God has done, says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I should break out into praise every time we think about God. Praise be to the God and Father, notice, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's personal. He's our personal master and savior. But I I believe this outburst of praise, though, here confirms the security of our salvation. Uh, Think about this with me for a moment. Why would Peter praise God for salvation if he's not sure that he'll actually end up experiencing it? I mean, why are you going to praise God for something if you don't know for sure that you can have it or maybe you could lose it? We praise God for our salvation because it's secure, because we know that we can never lose it. We praise God for a salvation that can never be lost and can never be forfeited. So to me, very simply here, this eruption of praise supports the idea that we're eternally secure in God's hands. Now, the second point here to me that supports our eternal security is what I call our position. In verse 3, we've been born again to a living hope. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been born spiritually into God's family. Every one of us were born physically into the family that we were born into, and we received the life that our parents could give to us, which was physical life, human life. But when we're born into God's family, God gives us His life, which is eternal life. 
And the term that's used here, born again, the theological term for it is regeneration, to receive the life of God. In fact, Peter mentions it over uh, further on in chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of seed that's perishable, but imperishable. And I think, you know, Peter got this, obviously, heard Jesus teach this, I'm sure many times, and it goes back to the story of Nicodemus. Jesus told old Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you have to be born again. But our physical life begins with a birth, and so does spiritual life. So our new birth is the entrance into God's family. Our natural life, at least our life in this world, begins with a birth, and so does our spiritual life. You and I need new life. We don't just need a hand up or kind of a little bit more strength or some help. We're dead in trespasses and sins, and we need life. Yesterday, uh, Cheryl and I were over at Saturn Grill in Oklahoma City, and we just sat down at our table, and this couple came in, and she walked by first, and he was behind her, and I noticed as he came through the door that he immediately started to stagger a little bit, and he came, and the table that we were sitting at, he put his hand on our table and almost hit into our table, and then I watched him go by, so I turned seeing that to watch him, and he immediately began to go and crash into this table behind us. And so I went over and tried to grab a hold of him, and another guy saw him, fortunately, as well, and we were able to get him before he hit the floor. He just passed out. And uh, he fell down there, and it, he woke up pretty quickly, and somebody called 911, and they came, and he, was, he ended up being okay. But I thought about that story last night as I was meditating on our passage again, or thought about what had happened. And I thought, you know, a lot of people's view of spiritual life is, is you know, we're, we, we've kind of fallen down and, and we're just kind of weak and we need somebody to just come along and kind of help us up and kind of put us in a chair like we did with that fellow and kind of help us out a little bit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we don't just need help. We don't just need a little bit more strength. You and I need life. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We have to be born again. Salvation is not just turning over a new leaf. It's receiving a new life from God. Eternal life. His life. You know, you'll often, when you talk about being born again, I've often hear people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born again kind of Christians. Well, that's the only kind, right? <laughs> there isn't any other kind. I mean, go back to John chapter 3. What did Jesus say? It's one of the great statements in the Bible. You must be born again. In fact, I like the way the old King James said, I learned from, ye must be born again. It's the most famous passage on being born again back in John chapter 3. Uh, the great preacher, George Whitfield, he preached all over the, the England and all over America. And uh, Whitfield, uh, a tremendous, tremendous godly man, tremendous preacher, but he preached over and over again on John chapter 3. In fact, they said he probably gave over a thousand sermons on that passage. You must be born again. Finally, a lady came up to him one time after she'd heard him preach several times. And she said, I, I notice you preach on that passage so often. Why do you talk so often about that passage? You must be born again. And he looked at her and said, because, my dear lady, you must be born again. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you have to be born again. And there, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians and just hang around church, but they've never experienced a new birth. They've never been born again into God's family. And you'll notice here this new birth is God's work. It says, and He caused us to be born again. And of course, that makes sense because in natural birth, we don't conceive ourselves and we don't birth ourselves. We don't give birth to ourselves. 
And it's the same thing in, in new birth or spiritual birth. God conceives us and God births us into his family by giving us new life. So the fact that we've been born again into God's family, I think means we can't ever lose our salvation because you can't get unborn once you've been born, right? I mean, it's impossible to reverse someone's birth. A new birth is just as irreversible as natural birth. It's like John Blanchard says, he says, God has never torn up a Christian's birth certificate. You can't get unborn. Now, what motivated God to give us this new birth? Look at what he says, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. The basis of our salvation is God's great mercy. It's not our own works. It's not our own goodness. We're not saved as a result of our merit but wholly and completely by His mercy. It's the pure mercy of God that any of us are ever born and birthed into God's family. And he says when we experience this new birth, we're born again into a living hope. New birth brings new hope. And this world we live in today has dying hopes. But we have a living hope as believers. And this living hope, he says, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His exit from the tomb is uh, the guarantee of life for you and me and our exit from our tomb someday. And I love this when Peter says we've been born again uh, by a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter was a witness of that, an eyewitness of the, the resurrection of Jesus. And so you and I as believers, we have a living hope, but we have a lasting hope through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the third anchor that I see here for our eternal security is what I call preservation. So when you're born into a family, here physically in this world, when you get born into a family, you're born into whatever inheritance that family has. Those in a family share in the inheritance of that family. And it's the same in God's family. When you get born into God's family, we immediately gain our share of the family inheritance. He says here in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. And of course, we all know that an inheritance isn't something that's earned. It's a gift. And so the same thing is true of our salvation. I think the word inheritance here and salvation really are synonyms for one another. And he goes on here to describe, the, to describe this inheritance, and he begins with three negatives. He says this inheritance is imperishable, which means it's, it's not corruptible or they're subject to destruction. It's not subject to decay. Then he says it's undefiled, which means it's not able to be stained or spoiled by sin. In other words, we can't sin our way out of it. And praise God for that, right? It's unspoiled. Our sin can't even destroy it. I like what uh, the Puritan John Flavel said, As God did not at first choose you because you were so high, so He will not forsake you because you're low. That's a beautiful promise. God didn't choose me because I was high. God's never going to forsake me because I'm low. And he says it's unfading. It was, this work was, word was used in secular Greek of a flower that didn't wither or die or lose its beauty. So it's permanent and unchangeable, has no expiration date. So our salvation, our inheritance is imperishable. It's death-proof. It's undefiled. It's sin-proof. It's unfading. It's time-proof. 
So you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have a death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof inheritance. And then he moves beyond that from the negative to the positive, and he says it's reserved in heaven for you. The word reserved means guarded or watched over or preserved. And I don't go into this stuff a lot of times, but this is important here. The verb is in the perfect tense. And in Greek, the perfect tense is some completed past action that has continuing results. So it's saying here, in the past, the reservation has been made and it still has continuing results. It's not like when you made that reservation online and then you get there and find out it never got recorded at the hotel, right? It's been made in the past and it still has continuing results. And it's in the passive, which means that God made the reservation uh, for me. So it's reserved, and he says it's reserved in heaven, the safest place in the universe. So your inheritance and my inheritance is under heaven's lock and key. And he says it's reserved in heaven for you. He applies it directly to the readers. My reservation has been made. In other words, it's personal. My eternal inheritance, my salvation is reserved and waiting for me in heaven. So our inheritance is safe in God's hands, and it's there waiting to be claimed by us someday. I like the way one man puts it. He says, life may pilfer from us, friends and family, health and wealth, but that which is most essential and wonderful remains unspoiled and unsoiled. The implication of Peter's words is that you and I have a guaranteed future in Christ. We have a spiritual trust fund that no one can touch. All the things that are really worth living for and dying for are locked safely away in heaven's vault. No one can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can rob, rob us of His forgiveness. No one can take His Holy Spirit from us. Nothing can reverse our deliverance from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Safe and sound is a good description of a Christian's life and lot. So you and I have this imperishable, unfading salvation. It's reserved in heaven for us. It's preserved. The fourth key word I see here is the word power. This is the, the fourth key to our security. Now, it's wonderful to know that God is keeping my inheritance secure in heaven. But I look at myself and how sinful I am, and sometimes I might wonder, well, it's great that God's keeping that inheritance, but I wonder if I'm ever going to get there to enjoy it. In other words, will I make it there? Will I, will I be able to, to be there to claim that inheritance? So look, it's great to know our inheritance is secure, but how can we know that we won't mess up so bad along the way that we won't make it there to claim the inheritance? Look at what verse 5 says. We are protected by the power of God through faith. This tells us that the same power that keeps our inheritance keeps us. We are kept or protected by God. God has placed you and me, as it were, in protective custody. One old Puritan said it like this, They are well kept whom the Lord keeps. If the Lord keeps you, you're well kept. We're a kept people for a kept inheritance. And the same power that keeps our inheritance keeps us. Our security is not in our hold upon God, but it's in His hold upon us. I was uh, reading a book uh, a while back. Uh, it's a new book by Max Lucado called Anxious for Nothing. And he quotes another man in here who um, had observed some trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. 
and what he had learned from them. And he, he shared this. He said, the secret is that with trapeze artists that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly, this acrobat who's telling him this, he says, when I fly to Joe, who's my catcher, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron. The worst thing a flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrist, I might break him or he might break mine. And that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. And then Lucado says this, In the great trapeze act of salvation, God is the catcher and we are the flyers. We trust, period. We rely solely upon God's ability to catch us. As we do, a wonderful thing happens. We fly. Your father has never dropped anyone. He won't drop you. His grip is sturdy and his hands are open. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for us in our salvation. We simply put our arms out there and we let God catch us and we let him hold us in his everlasting arms and he will never, ever let go of us. Now, a lot of people read this and they say, we're kept by the power of God through faith. They say, well, what if my faith gives out? Well, first of all, remember that our faith itself is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. But the other reason that you and I can know that our faith will never fail is the Lord Jesus is praying for us. Remember the night before he died on the cross, what Jesus said to Peter? It's a powerful statement. He told Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Sifting process was taking apart the, the, the head of, 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 of wheat. And so really what he's saying is, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to take you apart piece by piece. And he did. And Peter denied Christ three times. But what did Jesus tell Peter that night? He said, Peter, I will pray for you so that your faith will not fail. And Peter's faith didn't fail, even though he denied Christ three times. And as Peter's writing this, he must be thinking back to that time when he denied the Lord and knew that we're protected by the power of God through faith. Jesus, our great high priest, is praying for us that our faith won't fail. And that prayer will always be answered. And I think Peter learned, and he learned well, that he couldn't keep himself. It was God who kept him by the power of God through faith. Look, nothing can keep us from the inheritance that God has for us, or nothing can keep the inheritance from us, and nothing can keep us from that inheritance. It's a, it's a shock to me. I was thinking about this the other day, but 20 years ago this year was uh, the 40th birthday for me, and Cheryl had a surprise birthday party for me. I've never forgiven her for. Now, it was, a, it was a good time. Some of you were there probably years ago, I think. But it was out at the Round Barn in Arcadia. And, you know, that's up, you know, elevated, and it's in July. I mean, it was hot. They told her they had these coolers in there, but they, they don't really have coolers there, if they ever tell you that. It's little swamp coolers. I Man, it was hot. But everybody was dressed like the, back in the 70s, you know, to bring back memories for me, I guess. But we pulled up there. You know, Cheryl has it all worked out, and we're going to meet somebody's there that she needs to talk to. So we pull up, and kind of in keeping with my personality, she said, well, let's go in. I said, well, you go in, and I'll just wait in the car. <laughs> so then she has to get somebody to come down and make up some story about, you know, me, for me to come up there. And sure enough, I was really surprised there about the whole deal. And it was a great evening with a lot of our friends and loved ones there. But uh, Cheryl and our sons had prepared that party. 
But Cheryl made sure that I got to the party. She delivered me there at the appointed place and the appointed time. And it's the same way with God. God prepares the perfect party for us, but He makes sure that we make it to the party. That's what our great God does for each one of us. God keeps the inheritance for us, but He also keeps us for the inheritance. And notice that the final point here, the fifth of these anchors, I call this the period. It's for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation is safe and secure to the very end. God promises to finish what He starts. And I love this. Our salvation is ready. The future final realization of our salvation is ready. It's not like someday the Lord's going to come or we're going to die and God's going to say, well, wait a minute, i got to put a few finishing touches on this. Our salvation is ready. Everything's ready. Everything has been accomplished. And he says it's ready to be revealed, which implies that it already exists. All that remains is for it just to be unveiled. And notice it's ready to be revealed in the last time. How long will the Lord guard our heavenly inheritance? To the end. It's Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. It's like Spurgeon said, the one who takes care of our time will take care of our eternity. And you look at this and you think, what else could God do to convince us that our salvation is secure in his sovereign hand? We'll pick up next time in in verse 6, but notice the very first words of verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? This salvation he's been talking about, this secure salvation. We should rejoice constantly over the security of this eternal inheritance that God has given to us. Now, when you talk about eternal security, the one objection that always comes up is people will say, if you believe in once saved, always saved, or eternal security then that means people can just get saved and just go live however they want to live and go to heaven someday. That's a constant objection you hear to this doctrine of eternal security. And I don't want anyone this morning to get the idea that because you're eternally secure, that it makes no difference how you live. I ran across a a great quote this week that really ministered to me by Adrian Rogers, the great Baptist preacher. If you ever heard him, you can just hear him saying this. He says, if somebody ever says, well, if I believed and once saved, always saved, then I'd get saved and I'd sin all I want to. Here's what Adrian Rogers says. Friend, you're looking at a man who sins all he wants to. I sin more than I want to. I don't want to. If you have the idea that you'd get saved and then you'd sin all you want to, then you don't, then you, and you have that kind of sinning religion, then you don't know the Bible and you don't know the Lord. You get saved and you get your water fixed. As a matter of fact, you get a brand new wanter. He doesn't just fix it. He gives you a new one. I say amen to that. When you're born again and you receive God's life, you get a new wanter. You don't want what you used to want. Now, we still sin. We still fall. But we don't want to sin. I mean, isn't that powerful what, what Roger says? He says, you're looking at a man that sins all he wants to. In fact, he says, I sin more than I want to. I don't want to. And I can say before you today here, I don't want to either. I do. But when I do, I I go to the Lord and I confess it and I repent and come to Him and the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. 
when you get saved and you get this new life and you're born again to a living hope, you get a new wanter. You don't want what you used to. Now, the big question for all of us here this morning is, it's the big question every week, is have you received this salvation? Do you possess this infinite inheritance? Has, has your reservation been made? I mentioned old J. Vernon McGee earlier, one of his quotes I always loved. I used to listen to him on the radio all the time. And he'd say, I believe in the security of the believer, but I believe in the insecurity of the make-believer. There's a lot of people who are make-believers. Again, they go to church, they hang around, they talk about spiritual things, but they're just make-believers. They've never really trusted in Christ. And if you're a make-believer, you're not secure. A true believer is. So you say, well, how do I become a believer? How do I get born into God's family? Back in John chapter 1, verse 12, John wrote these words, but as many as received Him, received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. You get new life, you get born again into God's family by receiving and accepting Jesus Christ and Him alone as your Savior. So if you've never done that, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to come to Him for salvation. And when you do, God will give you your share of the inheritance, that eternal, imperishable, incorruptible, unfading inheritance. Your reservation will be made for you in heaven, and God will keep you until the last time. He'll keep you until the very end. Your anchor will hold until the very end. I want to close this morning with a story that I shared, I know, years ago, but I thought of it this week. Um, it's a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was imprisoned um, during the end of, of Hitler's uh, reign of terror. In fact, he died just a couple of weeks before World War II ended. But uh, Bonhoeffer was being kept with some other prisoners in a schoolhouse. And on April the 8th of, eight of, of 1945, the Sunday after Easter, um, he led a service there with some of the, the men who were there. One of them was a Catholic um, a number of others, um, a couple of them were atheists. They would come and hear him anyway. And the final service that he held, he quoted Isaiah 53, 5, but the main passage he spoke on was 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He explained those verses to everyone there, and many of them were, were very moved by what he said. The other prisoners were hoping that they could come to one of the services as well. But the man who tells the story said that, says this, he said, Bonhoeffer had hardly finished in his last prayer when the door opened and two evil-looking men in civilian clothes came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. Those words come with us for all prisoners, for they had come to mean one thing only, the scaffold. We bade him goodbye. He drew this man aside that he knew after he just preached this sermon. And he said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Now, I think I told you all this story before, but I was reading Bonhoeffer, reading the book on the way back from Hawaii. We're up in the airplane. And that's the only time in my life this has ever happened. I was so engrossed in the book, I forgot where I was. When I got to the end, the, the final chapter of the book is called On the Road to Freedom. It's about his death. And it's, it's powerful if you read the end of it. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. They took him from there to a place called Flossenburg. He spent one night in a cell there. They came and got him the next morning. He was hanged at dawn on April the 9th of 1945, about two weeks before the war ended. The man who came and got him said he'd never seen anyone like that before. He's prostrate on the floor before God, crying out to him. 
She had never seen a man die like that. But you know, a, a religion or a faith or whatever we believe in, it's only as good as its ability to help us at the end of life in the most desperate time. And the faith that we have will be there for us at the end. You and I will be able to say like Bonhoeffer, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. If we've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we bless you. We praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this so great salvation that you arranged in eternity past, that the Son has achieved, that the Spirit has applied to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you, O God, that it's a secure salvation. It'll never fade away. It's ready to be revealed the last time. It's complete and finished. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's outside of Christ, who's never trusted in Him, that they'll do it now, right where they sit, right in their heart. They'll take Jesus to be their Savior from sin. And Father, for those of us who know You, as we live in times that are becoming more upsetting and more insecure all the time, we'll realize, Father, our life is founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. It'll never change. It's unfading, imperishable. It can never be stained. Father, for each of us, I pray that we'll recognize that when the end of this life comes, for us, it's just the beginning of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.